This interview was brought to you by the Center for Leadership and Athletics at the University of Washington, an academic and research center within the College of Education. At the center, we believe in the power of sport to positively shape people and communities and are committed to developing effective leaders and leadership practices that maximize the positive educational impact of athletics. The center offers coach development opportunities for all levels of sport coaches, including a graduate degree program, the Excel Sports Coaching Certificate, and customized organizational trainings, all derived from the center's research, including the Ambitious Coaching Project. To learn more, visit uwcla.uw.edu. Hi, listeners. From our home offices during social distancing, I'm Marcia Daniel with the University of Washington Center for Leadership and Athletics. Today, we have Dr. Kevin Alshuler joining us, who is a rehabilitation psychologist at the University of Washington, a professor in the Department of Rehabilitation Medicine, as well as the Department of Neurology, and he is psychology director for the UW Medicine Multiple Sclerosis Center. He's also an active researcher with his recent, recent studies centered around pain psychology. Dr. Ashler also consults with coaches and teams on how performance can be improved through sports psychology. Dr. Ashler, thank you for being with us today. Thank you for having me. I'm looking forward to this. Um, we're going to cover quite a few topics, so I wanted to give our listeners a quick overview before we get started. We'll begin the conversation discussing Dr. Ashler's re research on pain psychology. Then we're going to talk about resilience building and the specific behaviors associated with resilient athletes and teams. And then, of course, we have to spend a little bit of time talking about how all this applies to the specific challenges and the unique challenges that we're facing today during COVID-19. Before we dive in, Kevin, I wanted to share something that's direct from your bio. You refer to the coach as the vital reinforcer of psychological principles. I was hoping you could tell us what you mean by that, because I think that can help us frame today's conversation. Absolutely. I think that's a, a phrase I put in there because I look for a certain kind of relationship when I'm uh, figuring out which teams or coaches or athletes that I might want to work with. I learned early on in my psychology career that as great as we might think we are as psychologists, we only have a small impact on a person's life. If we just think about um, how much time there is in a week, right? There's 168 hours in a week. We as psychologists are lucky if we get one of those hours with a person. And one hour is you know, about half a percent. But meanwhile, there's people out in that person's world who have all kinds of contact with them and they're talking to them and they're acting a certain way around them and they're influencing the world they exist in. So early on as a psychologist, I really started to learn about this with our patients' families, right? And they'd spend one hour a week with us and all the rest of the week was influenced by their work or their family environment. Same thing in sports. So coaches, from my perspective, have a much greater opportunity to impact the psychology of their athletes and their teams. And so I can't come in as a psychologist and do a session with a team and expect that to stick if the coach isn't on the same page. So from my perspective, the coach at minimum is a reinforcer of our message or an obstacle, but hopefully not. But I think in the best relationships that I've been involved with in, in the sports world, the coach has been somebody who, who can really translate what we're doing on the psychology side and weave it in everywhere with their team 
so that it's a message that's being reinforced over and over and over every day, every practice, every game. Your recent research examined how athletes respond to and cope with pain, and you chose to study ultra runners. So tell us, why did you choose that population? What is unique about ultra runners? Sure. So, so there's two answers to this. One is, is a practical answer, which is that I had access to athletes who were running in a certain ultramarathon series. Uh, there's a colleague here, Brian Krayback at, at the University of Washington, who works in sports medicine who I got to know over recent years, and he is the medical director for one of these ultramarathon series. So that's the practical side. We can only do research if we can get to the participants, and that was certainly an inviting opportunity. But the important thing is that Brian's prior research had shown that in this particular ultramarathon series, about 85% of the people who participated experienced some type of injury that required at least a little bit of medical attention. So we're talking from blisters on up to broken bones or, or serious medical events. And most of these people were experiencing things that were painful or at least uncomfortable. And so we thought this would be an interesting population to study because if 85% of them have pain, but only a small percent are dropping out of their race, there must be something about how they're handling the pain that we could learn from. I work clinically with patients who are really suffering from pain. And I think most of those patients, if I said you have an 85% chance that you're going to get injured or you're going to have something uncomfortable happen, they probably wouldn't go anywhere near that activity. (laughs) But here in in these races, these people willfully take it on. There was a a nice synopsis in Outside Magazine in their online edition, is that right, that covered this research you did? Yeah, that's that's yeah. correct. In that article, they mentioned pain sensitivity, that you differentiate between pain sensitivity and pain tolerance. Can you tell yeah. us a bit about that? Absolutely. So we studied the ultramarathon runners in the Four Deserts race series in 2016. So these are individuals who run a marathon a day for a series of days and then a double marathon, all in the <laughs> desert and all while, all while camping in between stages. Um, <laughs> so this is certainly an interesting group. And one of the things that we know about long-distance runners is that they have a, a real uh, strength in, in their ability to manage their pain. And so there's there's two components to this that a number of researchers have been interested in. So one is called pain sensitivity. And, and pain sensitivity is the point at which your discomfort becomes painful to you. So we each have a different, um, a different um, spot where that pain sensitivity kicks in. So for example, if I were to push against your arm as hard as I could, and I kept pushing harder and harder and harder, we would each decide for ourselves when that started to hurt so bad that we call it painful. And we think that in general, distance runners have a higher pain sensitivity, meaning that it takes um, more painful stimulus or more of if we're pushing that pressure on their arm, it would take a harder push before they decide that it's painful. Pain tolerance, on the other hand, is how long we're willing to coexist with that pain? At what point do we say, that's enough, I can't handle the pain anymore? Mm. 
And so that's another aspect where we also think athletes are at the higher end. We don't really know um, exactly why. We have a number of theories why. But it's the idea that they'll stick with that painful sensation longer, perhaps in part because of you know what their motivations are, what their willingness is to take that pain head on. The article also referred to adaptive and maladaptive coping strategies, um, and you found that there those are the two different ways that athletes can experience and respond to pain. Can you tell us a bit about that? And I want to make sure for our co- for our listeners who are thinking, "I'm never my athletes are never going to run a marathon a day. This is crazy, and this doesn't apply to us." I promise that we're we're heading in the direction of the athletes that are are more common in terms of the sp- the pain spectrum. Definitely. So there's about. 40 years of history of pain psychology research now. And and what we're about to talk about is really our bread and butter from a psychologist's perspective. So adaptive pain coping strategies are the things that we can do with our thoughts or our actions that help us manage our pain in a helpful way, that a way that allows us to function at our best. And maladaptive strategies are the opposite. They're the ones that hinder us or that kind of limit our ability to function at our best. The way I like to think of it, if we think about kind of where the pain psychology literature stands right now, adaptive strategies are, are, are really built around our willingness to work with the pain, to coexist with it, to have it present. It doesn't mean that we want to have it present, but it means that we're willing to have it be there and we're willing to figure out how do I, how do I, move myself forward? How do I succeed at at what I'm trying to do despite the fact that I have this pain present? Maladaptive coping strategies are the ones where we're unwilling to have that pain in our lives, where we're pushing back. It might be fear-based, where we're afraid that the pain means that I'm hurting myself. And I'm sure we'll get into the injury component uh, in in a few minutes. But maladaptive coping strategies tend to cause us to kind of run from the pain. We try to, we're motivated to make the pain stop as opposed to working with it. Probably the best known maladaptive coping strategy is what we call pain catastrophizing. With catastrophizing being what it sounds like, it's thinking of the most catastrophic, worst case scenarios that could be happening from our pain. And we know that adaptive and maladaptive coping relate to all kinds of what we would call outcomes for people. So their ability to function better, succeed in the sports context, in the context of, for example, our ultra marathon um, research, the coping strategy use related to the likelihood of a person finishing the race or needing to drop out. Putting this into the context of like a typical training day or a practice where athletes are having to to learn how to to manage just the discomfort of training. Some of our coaches are working with athletes who are in a, a nascent stage of developing their relationship with and even their understanding of pain, specifically their ability to distinguish between pain that's a normal part of training and heart efforts, right? And then the pain that might be precursor to injury. So what guidance do you have for those coaches who are working with these athletes who don't fully understand their pain yet? So this is a really important point to think about when we're talking about pain. And I'm glad you're bringing this up because I want everybody to leave with the right message from this. Pain and injury are separate things, right? So we often think of pain and injury together. 
right? We think if I sprain my ankle, it hurts. If I break my leg, it hurts. If I dislocate my thumb, it hurts. And that's absolutely true. But I think in the sports context, we also have to remember that we say when I ran really hard, that hurt. Or when we were lifting, that workout really hurt. And there we're talking less, not about injury, but we're talking about discomfort. So pain is, is really something that it's a sensation that we feel. And it becomes painful when we decide that it's painful. But we need to separate that from the injury part. So there's a few things to think about. When we have younger or developing athletes, part of what we need to help them assess is the extent to which any pain or discomfort they're feeling is good or bad, or what, or really a better way to think of it is whether it's representative of an injury or not of an injury. And I actually think as much as we're talking about this in terms of developing athletes, this is something I've seen all the way up to the elite, the professional level as well. You know, I think from a coaching side, from a motivated athlete side, we're often in a position where we're trying to push for more, right? So no pain, no gain, that type of attitude. But we also need to operate from a perspective where we're certain that the athlete is healthy and that there isn't an injury going on. So as we're developing athletes, we have to develop their ability to understand themselves and assess themselves. And then we need to support those athletes with not only coaching, but also with good medical support, whether that's an athletic trainer, medical team, or, or so forth. You know, but we need to have those relationships so that we know that what we're working with is discomfort and not the sign of an injury. What's the most important thing for coaches to keep in the back of their minds as they're considering this and they're thinking about the kind of culture that they want to have on their team with regard to pain? Because, I mean, obviously, if we're going to be in athletics and push ourselves to improve, like we athletes need to have some level of comfort with pain and, and pushing limits. Uh, and then but we also want the culture to be healthy. We want the athletes to be healthy. And you mentioned having that self-awareness. What can coaches do to develop a healthy team culture around pain and help the athletes develop their understanding of pain? I like that you're using the word develop because I think it takes a developmental model, right? Where we're figuring out how do we help the athlete develop to be a, a stronger, faster, whatever, you know, whatever descriptor we might want to use type of athlete. And so the, the goal with with all athletes, right, regardless of age, is that we're developing their ability to get the most out of themselves. And if we're going to do that, that has to be done in a healthy way. So the coaches who I've, I've worked with who've been most successful with this are those coaches who have the open relationship with their athletes, who are able to talk about what's going well, what's going poorly. And for athletes who are struggling with run-of-the-mill athletic discomfort that isn't a sign of an injury they know the athlete well enough that they know they can work on that but then they also know their athletes well enough to know when something isn't run-of-the-mill day-to-day soreness or discomfort with exertion and instead they know that it's something that maybe should be evaluated i think one of the things that concerns me sometimes is when the relationship isn't that open and athletes feel like they need to hide it or coaches feel like they need to push their athletes for more without really knowing what's going on. Mm -hmm. A lot of the teams that I've worked with that have had the most success have also done a really nice job involving 
their medical support, whether that's been at the high school level or up into the collegiate or um, professional ranks. So not having the athletic trainer or the team doctors be somebody who you're throwing athletes to in the worst case scenario, but having these folks be part of the culture of the team, not so that athletes feel like they need to go hang out in the training room instead of working hard, but so that everybody has this familiarity with each other so that everybody's working towards health, right? And towards healthy functioning. So as an example that I can give, I worked with one team where it was the athletic trainer's job to clear the athletes. It was the strength and conditioning coach's job then to certify that the athletes were fit. And at that point, it was the coach's job to coach up the athlete and build their skill and push them for more. And I realize not everybody has all of those resources at their disposal, but I think that kind of provides an important model of saying they need to be healthy, then they need to be appropriately fit, and then they're ready to be pushed as athletes unique to their sport. Mm -hmm. So it checks and balances system, it sounds like. Absolutely, because I think, you know, we all get motivated, right, by winning and hopefully not losing, right, by being successful. And so having a model like that kind of helps guard against some of the things that we might do, not because we're coming from a bad place or something like that, but that might be unhealthy, you know, such as pushing athletes when they're not ready to be pushed or when they're not in a healthy spot to Mm -hmm. be pushed. Well, I would think for the coaches who don't have access to that support team, I would think it would be even more important for those coaches to really develop healthy relationships with their athletes where the communication lines are open and athletes feel comfortable talking about what they're experiencing and where the coach can really be tuned in to the health and and well-being of that athlete. Absolutely. And I I think, you know, some coaches and I've been a coach in my past, so I can, I can speak about coaches and, and also, um, come from a place of having been one myself, some coaches worry about, for example, the time commitment of checking in with all of their athletes. But I actually see it as a, an opportunity to really create more opportunity for that athlete. So the side we've been talking about is, you know, do you know if your athlete is injured, right? Because you don't want to push if, if they're injured. The inverse or the flip side of that is if we know our athletes are healthy and we know they're ready to go, that gives us more room to be creative and find ways to push the the athlete. Well, I want to talk with you a little bit about resilience. I know you've also worked with teams on, on building individual athlete and team resilience as a means of enhancing performance and the athlete experience. So to start, how do you define resilience? Because it's a, it's a word that gets thrown around a lot. So I was hoping you could define it for us. So you can't tell since we're just on audio, but you're getting a big smile with that question because (laughs) I was actually on a research team uh, recently that tried to come up with a better definition of resilience. And it was an endless process that I'm not sure ever ended in a full consensus. So we've often worked from definitions like one from George Bonanno, who's a psychologist who works with people um, who've had chronic illness or injury who said it's the human capacity to persist, bounce back, and flourish when faced with stressors. And I think that's a great, concise definition that we can work with. So it's, you know, how well can a uh, a person kind of bounce back from a challenge, 
how well can they push and, and how do they find a way to thrive despite the stressor or the challenge that they're facing? What I like to say though, is that resilience is part of why we have a hard time defining resilience is that it isn't any one thing. Resilience is a cluster of skills or behaviors that a person possesses and is able to use in the face of a challenge. So part of why we can't define it is because it looks different from person to person. But if a person possesses a skill set that lets them get back up when they've been knocked down and they can do it efficiently and they can bounce back to something as good or better than where they were before, then they are demonstrating resilience. And that's ultimately what we're looking for. What are some of the visible behaviors that you look for in an athlete or a team that illustrate resilience? So when I take this challenge on with teams, this challenge of defining resilience, I like to work from the perspective of what do we look like when we're at our best? What are the things that we're doing? How are we thinking? How are we acting? How are we playing? Right? So it's not just the gameplay or the, the way the person's racing, if it's a racing type sport, um, but also like, how are they carrying themselves and, and how are they communicating with each other? How are they communicating with themselves internally? And I like to work from that model of, you know, what is our best self look like? And from that, usually we can identify three, four, five things in a team that, that um, is representing their best self. And therefore, in the most challenging moments, these are the resilience behaviors we want to bring back because it will help them get back to their best state. So if we take an example, there's a team I worked with recently who, when they were in their best state, they were communicating well. You could see them talking to each other. They were smiling, right? Not because we always have to be happy out there, but because it, it showed that sense of, of belief in themselves and that, kind of that, that joy of being out there and competing. They looked relaxed because they were taking a deep breath when they needed to, they were resetting when they needed to, and they were very focused from a, a more skill or, or strategy side. They were very focused on each individually doing their own role because they had that belief that they worked together as a team. When they weren't resilient, we saw long faces, nobody was communicating, guys were taking unnecessary risks because they were, um, they were concerned that just doing their job wasn't going to be enough for the team. Right? So you could kind of see that there was this resilient version, this, this thriving version, and there was this other version where they were really struggling. And so our resilience work was, how do we get back to that best version of ourselves? How do we build that ability to be those um, patient, but confident, focused on our job, smiling, communicative athletes that we saw when they were at their best? What are the visible behaviors that you see in a resilient coach? So same thing, right? We need to do some evaluation of the individual. Not everybody is the same. So just like in that last group, we saw that they smiled when they were playing well. Not every team does it, right? But, but many do. Um, so it's the same thing with a coach. So I think we have to know, you know, who are we at our best and what do we do? What, what tends to get in the way of us being at our best? So I've worked with coaches, same idea here, right? 
They're strong leaders. They're helping guide their athletes. They're helping keep morale up when things are going well. And then they struggle when things aren't, right? They quiet down, the faces get long, they get kind of sucked into those more you know, negative or challenging moments. And so I, I pose to them these same challenges, right? How do we get back to that version of you that is the best version of you? And so again, that requires knowing what that is. But also what we didn't talk about a few minutes ago is, is it also requires knowing how to get back to being that best version of ourselves. And that ultimately is really a skill set. Right, so we might know what we're doing when we're at our best, but we might not know how to get there. And so just as we would build skills in ourselves or in our athletes, you know, around their sports specific skill, we can build these same skills around our thoughts and around our behaviors. And I think if we take that skills development approach, we realize that we should be building our athletes ability to get themselves back on track as efficiently as possible, right? So back to that definition, can they persist? Can they bounce back and can they flourish in the face of the challenge? That only happens if we've developed that ability in ourselves and in our athletes to get back to that best version of ourselves. What are the, a few of the ways that you build these behaviors? Um, let's start with individual athletes and teams, and then I'm going to come back to the coach, of course. <laughs> sure. Sure. Yeah, so I like to think of it like a training plan. So this first you know, step is, is the assessment part, just as you would assess your athletes if you're working on their fitness or their ability to throw a ball or, or you know, um, perform on a balance beam or whatever it might be. So we do this assessment. What do they do well? and what gets in the way of doing well what what you know what are those challenges and then we work to build those skills right in a stepwise format so if you think of a training plan that you would build right you'd start with where they are and you'd work at incrementally growing the necessary behaviors so this brings up things that that often people aren't thinking about with psychology we need a consistent approach Right? We have to think of it like skill development where we work at it every day to make it better and better. It has to be, so it has to be there consistently, right? but it also has to be woven into everything we do. So we don't want to just be resilient on game day. We want to be resilient in training or in practice. We want to demonstrate these, these positive, resilient type attributes in all of our team interactions. So the coaches who I've seen who have successfully grown resilience in their team have used the messaging around resilience and have focused on building the resilience skills every day. It's in every communication, it's in every practice, it's in every game. And they've taken the long view, right? It's not like, hey, get it together and you've got to fix this today. It's this view of it's going to be something we have to grow over time, the same way we might grow skill or we might grow fitness. It's not just going to happen overnight. And I think my experience has been that when we get to this, this conversation that we're having here, this idea that building resilience is really building skills, building behaviors, that's when coaches start to believe that this is something they can do because this is what you do all the time. Right? This is what you do with your athletes in all different types of ways related to your sport. 
And if resilience isn't some fancy psychological thing, but it's actually the development of resilient behaviors, I think a lot of coaches realize this is something they can do, whether they're a psychologist or not. Do you need adverse situations and experiences to be able to work on resilience or how, how would give me, can you give me an example of how a coach would implement this into a practice plan without knowing what kind of challenges the athletes or the team might experience on that given day? Yeah. So if I were, I'll answer my own question here, but if I were to flip this back on you and ask, you know, do you need a, a pitcher to be able to throw strike three in the bottom of the ninth with the bases loaded and the game on the line, do you need them to only practice that in that situation? The answer would be no, right? So they would practice throwing a ball well with nobody around and then just with a catcher, and then they progress their way up to more and more challenging situations. It's the same idea here, right? Ultimately, we only know if a person's resilient when we've tested them under pressure, right? That's when the rubber meets the road, and, and that's when we find out if this is actually working. And as, the, as a psychologist with teams, that's often the spot where I'm sweating it out the most, is, <laughs> is I'm hoping that what we've done is actually going to show up and actually yeah. is going to work. But we can't, we, in fact, we shouldn't develop it, from my perspective, only in pressure situations. I think we have to develop it starting with the most run-of-the-mill, everyday situations. So for example, there's a team I, I work with in the area who has really um, developed the ability to be mindful, to be in the moment as much as possible with the idea that being in the moment, being focused on what's right in front of us will give us the greatest chance to succeed because all we can work on is the thing that's right in front of us. And they've worked on this every day from the first meeting of the, the year to the last game of the year. And they've built it day after day after day with the idea that if they build this skill, if it becomes a routine thing for them, it will be easier to call on it in the most challenging situations. Now, I've seen other ways to approach this, and I'm sure you have as well. There's a, there are resilience building models that really challenge people, really put them under adverse situations. Um, we see this, for example, in a basic training type model in the military. And I think there is a lot of good to that. There's an opportunity to kind of challenge yourself to, to see how you perform in these adverse situations. But that's also very much a trial by fire situation. It's not always a team building <laughs> scenario. We know attrition rates are high and all, you know, all we get at the end are the people who are able to survive that challenging situation. And you asked earlier about, you know, what makes for a healthy team culture. I'm not sure that that makes for a healthy team culture. So it doesn't mean you can't challenge athletes. And I think, in fact, it's important to. It's important to bring in some adversity from time to time to test people and see how they're performing in adverse situations. But we build resilience from square one. And square one is probably actually not in the most adverse situation. We want to develop strong enough skills so that when people face adversity, they have that foundation and then they're able to build on it in those moments. Thinking about the coach, I have two kind of two parts to this question. So one, you know, how can a, a coach develop and foster resilience within their own their own personal selves and their coaching? 
but then also thinking about how we would implement this into practice planning. And I'm hearing you say like, there needs to be a reasonable progression. We can't just throw young athletes like into pot, pot of boiling water and just expect them to develop resilience. We need to have a progression just like we would with any other component of our training. So I'm assuming that there's, there's going to be a lot of kind of upping the challenge and then talking with the athletes about like, this is, this is what we just did. This is what you just developed. This is how you showed, this is how you illustrated resilience. A lot of kind of like showing them or telling them how they exhibited resilience in that, in those moments. Is that how that would look? Absolutely. So I think, yeah, there's a couple of things. So one is exactly what you just said. I think we want to have this iterative model, right? Where we're teaching and then we're, we're going back, we're explaining it, we're brushing up on the things that, um, you know, we're congratulating them for the things they did well, but we're also brushing up on the things that didn't go well, and we're continuing to grow stronger and stronger behaviors. I also think, though, that, that a lot of the coaches who have the most resilient teams have taught a way of being to their team with a certain consistency, where these behaviors that best support their resilience are there all the time. So it's not something that they have to summon in the moment as much as it's something that's been built with such a strong foundation that it's just there, that they are just resilient at their core, as opposed to having to dig into some toolbox in the most desperate moment <laughs> to mm -hmm. be something better than they've been until that moment. I also think if we demonstrate those things more of the time, we, we face fewer challenging situations as well. So it has a certain protective mechanism as well, because it allows us to maintain a higher level performance all of the time and not just have it be something we need to flip on in the most critical moments of our game or our season. Mm -hmm. uh, as we consider resilience, how does this apply to the ongoing challenges we're facing today during COVID-19 and feeling socially isolated and um, school and sports seasons having been canceled? Like how, how can we apply resilience to these unique challenges? Yeah, I think, you know, as much as we love sports and as much as we, you know, live and die by how our teams are doing or how we're performing as, as athletes um, or as our teams are performing for coaches, you know, I, I think the current situation we're in is at a, a totally different level, right? It's literally life or death for a number of people. So the challenge with COVID-19 from my perspective is that there's this uncertain threat that's hanging out there. And most of us don't like uncertainty in our lives. In fact, I think all of us do better when there's certainty than when there's uncertainty, but some of us struggle more with that than others. And there's kind of a balance. So when people feel this type of threat, threatening uncertainty in their lives, there's two extremes that don't work out very well that people go to. One of those extremes is kind of the head in the sand. I don't want to think about it because it's too scary. It's too stressful. The other extreme is we worry endlessly about it. I've got to figure it out. I've got to know what's going on. I've got to make it better. And we go beyond anything we can control. And we're kind of in this zone of over control where we're grabbing for too much. And we think the healthiest zone is somewhere in the middle. We, we don't want to ignore the challenge, but we also need to recognize that we're not going to fix everything with the challenge. So people who are responding most resiliently to this current challenge 
are these people who are able to land in that middle spot where they're able to find the ways to thrive, find the ways to live the best life they can despite the challenge that's in front of us. And it's not easy. You were talking about social isolation. You know, I, I think this has been just a tremendously challenging situation for so many people, cut off from social um, components that support our well-being, but also cut off from other things that relate to our well-being. For some people, their jobs. Um, for some people, important activities that um, they really get a lot of joy or meaningfulness from. For example, you know, sport is certainly one of them. There's been a sudden adjustment where a lot of people, probably everybody to some extent, have lost access to some of the things that make their life as uh, meaningful or fulfilling as they would like it to be. So this has been a really difficult challenge. And I think people who have good resilience skills are probably managing it a little bit better than others. Um, they're finding ways to do the things that, that they can do um, as opposed to being focused on the things that they can't do. But right now, I think we're in a phase with this where it's a prolonged resilience. So initially, it was kind of this challenge in front of us, and maybe we didn't think it was going to last that long, and we'd kind of, you know, push through the best we can for a few weeks. Now I think we're realizing that that ability to bounce back over and over and over again is really hanging out there for a lot of us as we try to figure out when this thing is going to end. Mm -hmm. What advice do you have for coaches as the coaches themselves and their student athletes are starting to feel that cumulative fatigue? So early on, you know, I think there was kind of this hope we were holding out there. We were hoping that spring seasons, for example, would happen. And as this has moved along and spring season here in Washington, especially has been canceled, but basically all sports been put on hold. Now there's this question of now what do I do? Where where do I go with this? And so I think there's two things. I mean, I think the obvious one is sports will be back, right? And so the easy sell is they're going to be back. We want to work hard so that we're ready to be back when, when things come back. I think that's the pretty obvious one. I think the less obvious one, though, is that we need to realize that a person's well-being is built on having a life that includes activities or components that are fulfilling to the person who's doing them. And the reason a lot of athletes and coaches and sports administrators for that matter, like sport is that sport often fills a number of these meaningful areas. I, I like to think of them almost like a, like buckets, right? So they fill up kind of these meaningfulness buckets for everybody. And for a lot of people, they get they, they fill um, these meaningful buckets in a variety of ways through sport, right? So they might have some around teamwork or camaraderie or pushing themselves hard or facing a challenge or being a competitor. And they get so many things through their sport. So what I've been encouraging coaches, um, I was talking to rowing boathouse directors recently about this as well, is to realize that part, that your athletes, sure your athletes love the sport that, that you all share in common, but they love it because it, it does something for them, right? It's fulfilling in probably many different ways. And right now that's what we all need. We need help with figuring out 
how we're going to feel fulfilled if we don't get to go to practice or we don't get to go to our games and just naturally kind of extract that from those experiences. So right now I've been encouraging people to try to focus on those pieces so that we help everybody stay healthy mentally, right? But also help everybody stay fulfilled because we know that when things come back, when sport comes back, when other aspects of life come back, that we want people to be in a good place so that they can jump back in. I wouldn't worry so much about being in the optimal training stage today or tomorrow, but I would worry about our, our athletes being healthy and coping the best that they can with these challenges. So it does kind of convert the coaching role into a, a support role. Coaches don't have to be a psychologist or, you know, or any other, you know, person in the mental health field, but they do play an important role. This is back to kind of where we were at the beginning, right? It's that coaches play such an important role in the well-being of the people, uh, the athletes who they support. And this is another chance to show that. This is another chance to really help support your athletes as we all go through this incredible challenge. Yeah. Yeah, we've been having some interesting conversations with coaches about what they've been doing to support their athletes. And through those conversations, we're recognizing the athletes, they need an outlet, they need an opportunity to talk about some of the emotional pain they're experiencing and, and the loss they're experiencing and feel connected to their peers. And if there's any way that we can create that connection or maintain that connection so that athletes continue to feel connected to one another and feel continue to feel that support from their coach. Um, they need it now more than ever, right? Absolutely. And I, I think, you know, one of the groups I was talking to, we were talking about kind of the more rigid version of managing this and the more flexible version of managing this. So the more rigid version is saying, okay, we can't do our sport in person, but how do we do it remotely, right? So how do we train? How do I have the athletes do the closest thing to our sport that they can do while we're not there? The flexible approach is saying more what I was saying before of what do my athletes get out of this? And oh, maybe one of the things is support, right? And it's camaraderie. And we can get that on Zoom. It may not be as great as being there together, um, but it's a chance to bring everybody together. And if all we do, with all being in heavy quotes here, if all we do is bring our athletes together and have them support each other, that's a tremendous thing. And who cares if we haven't done the sport part in mm -hmm. that moment? We'll find another way to do that in another moment. Yeah, pretty major shift in priorities. Absolutely. Let's wrap up on a high note. Big picture sports psychology in five minutes or less. What's the next frontier and what are you excited about studying in the future or seeing more research around in the field of sports psychology? So, you know, I, we talked at the beginning that I come from this perspective of the coach and the psychologist really need to be able to work together. And I, I think this is a reflection, not just of myself, but of where sports psychology is headed. So 20 years ago, maybe even 10 years ago, the sports psychologist role was really one where you only brought the person in if somebody was having a problem, right? If a, a golfer had the yips when he was putting, if a pitcher suddenly couldn't find the strike zone, if a team was falling apart, right? So we saw psychologists being in this role of fixing problems. Now in the current model, and you see this with teams that really thrive with this, like the Seattle Seahawks, for example, have a great psychologist, um, Michael Gervais, 
you can see that the coach and the psychologist are working together not to fix problems, but to help push the team forward. So it's putting psychology more into a performance enhancement type role. So I think that is still our next frontier. There's still, that's still more the exception than the rule. I think more and more people are catching on to this role for sports psychology. But I think we're realizing that everybody's kind of training the same and using the same strategy and using the same technique. If we want to find ways to really push things forward and maybe get ahead of the competition, it's going out into these areas, nutrition, psychology, and, and so forth. So this idea of integrating psychology for performance enhancement is still in its first, uh, in, people have done it for a long time, but on kind of the mainstream level, it's here in its first decade or so. So I think we're going to see more growth in that way. I think what we don't know, and this is where the research comes in, is we don't know a lot of things about sports psychology with a research backing. We know bits and pieces, but relative to some aspects of psychology where there are just decades and decades of important research, there's less so in sports psychology. Sports psychology has definitely been more of an applied field where we've taken things that we know work um, in other populations, we've brought them into sport, um, and, and they should work in sport. Um, I have no reason to doubt those things, but we need to do more and more research to understand if they work, how they work, in what ways they work, and how we can make them better. So all that is to say, it would be great if we had a bigger, stronger research program around all things we do in sports psychology, because I think we could, we could more efficiently grow our field with that type of, of program that it would accompany the applied element. Well, I love what you're saying there. And I, so I, I kind of heard two different things. I mean, one, there, there is more of a need for research and for scholars to work on this, but then also just for the, for all of the coaches out there, even from youth sport level, middle high school and collegiate, I mean, there's a lot of opportunity for us to explore various ways to help our athletes, help them have a better experience and to enhance performance through some of these elements that, people don't think about quite as much. And that's exciting. Well, I certainly think so, because obviously this is where <laughs> my interest is. But but it, yeah, I mean, I do think so. And I, I think a huge credit to the coaches I've had a chance to interact with um, in these last five to 10 years, especially, is it's kind of less of this, what we used to think of as like the old school mentality, where it was all about your sport and that was it. Uh, I think we're seeing much more of a recognition now that that to succeed and, and really to excel in sport, it takes more of a, a well-rounded approach where part of it is sports specific, but then part of it is about, you know, like I said before, nutrition and psychology and strength training, as well as just about having healthy people involved in your sport. Mm -hmm. And so it's no, there's less of this attitude of, that we need to beat our heads against the wall <laughs> over and over. Right. And there's more of a developmental or, or growth mentality to sport. And I'm glad to see that because I think that's going to create much more opportunity, um, especially for us on the psychology side. Yeah. Well, and it's exciting to think about all the ways that young people can be developing skills that will enhance their health, their wellness, their well-being, their resilience outside of sport. I mean, sport is a perfect platform to be practicing these elements, learning these elements. And it's exciting to think about all the ways that that can help 
these young people grow and serve, you know, to serve them in their lives and every, every element of their lives. Absolutely. One of the uh, youth programs, uh, high school here in the Seattle area that I work with, one of my favorite things is that the coaches there view their role as, as one where they're helping develop youth. They want to win. Uh, they work hard to help their athletes win, right? but they, they really value the life skill aspect of what they get to do more than the winning and losing. And it shows. It's why they're among the best coaches I've ever worked with in terms of integrating the psychology piece. It's why they have some of the healthiest teams that I've ever seen because they're, they're putting growth ahead of winning and losing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I agree with you. I, I think there's so much we learn through sport that we can take into other aspects of life. There's a lot of people who believe athletes make some of the best employees, right? And I think that's because they've learned so many great lessons uh, through sport that they're able to translate into their, their work as employees, mm-hmm. for example. Yeah. Well, for our listeners who want to learn more about your work, your website is kevinauschler.com. And you can also follow Dr. Auschler on Twitter at Kevin Auschler. And of course, I'm going to spell that A-L-S-C-H-U-L-E-R. Any other places people can follow you or um, learn more about your work? We mentioned the Outside Magazine article. Um, Where else can people find some uh, if they want to dig in a little more on this? That's a pretty uh, complete list. There is also a podcast through Wilderness and Environmental Medicine, where we talked at length about the ultramarathon research as well. Uh, And that might interest some folks, as well as there was a podcast through Outside uh, Magazine, the the same group that had done the write-up, where they looked at pain in sport, and that included our work as well. So... Um, a lot of similar points to what we talked about today, but uh, perhaps covering a little bit different territory as well. Yeah. Well, Kevin, I want to thank you for being with us. I mean, particularly right now, people are facing some unique challenges and juggling the many demands of life while working from home. I know you have a family and, and made time for us and made time to share your expertise with our listeners, despite a lot of other things going on. So thank you so much for that. And thank, thank you for this conversation. Thank you for having me. I enjoyed it.